0: Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Today, are you on top of your digital marketing game?
1: What are you doing to focus on your search engine reputation and or your social media presence? How engaged are you in both listening and engaging that consumer base or population online?
0: Regular listeners of the show know I love talking about businesses that are uniquely started and built here. Well, I'm here in the studio with Trip Donnelly, the founder and CEO of REQ, a digital marketing strategy business that has grown rapidly right here in the D.C. region. Well, this company recently announced a significant business combination with another homegrown business, Speakerbox Communications, and that got my attention. So we're going to talk today about digital marketing strategy, what makes it really suited for our region, and why doing business in the industry is different here than elsewhere. Tripp, thanks
1: for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Well,
0: it's terrific to have you. Tell me, what is digital marketing and why is the D.C. region a particularly great place to do it?
1: Well, digital marketing combines a lot of different technologies and tradecraft, and the basics around it are to define, connect, and protect brands online, the way that the average consumer, customer, stakeholder, legislator, especially in the D.C. area, sees something online and how they connect. They shape purchasing decisions, make travel decisions, and they get to know brands and companies through that window of the of the internet. And I would think
0: that that is really hard to do right now in the wild west of, of social
1: media, isn't it? It is, but I guess to take a step back, I'm I'm a veteran of this, or perhaps a victim of it, of <laughs> nearly 20 years, right? Okay. I, I've grown up since the late 90s in this space, and I've seen the landscape transform a lot. I don't know if you remember Jonathan, but of course, when I started in this business, there was nearly 20 search engines. Now today, there's... There's three, but there's more commonly known as one, mm-hmm. Google, of course. Mm-hmm. So this landscape has a life cycle that changes every two or three years. And our business is not only to know what we're supposed to deliver to customers, but to actually stay ahead of the game, to understand what is over the horizon, what the next platform is.
0: Mm, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also do agree with you that these days we see time and again, a business that isn't proactively looking at its its digital footprint is going to wake up one day and be subjected to some really bad stuff.
1: <laughs> I agree. It's
0: it's amazing how fast it all moves. So clearly there's a market for
1: this nationally.
0: How does it differ here, say, than um, New York or Chicago or L.A. or elsewhere?
1: In this regard, especially in the D.C. region, which is so government, so politically focused, of course, the first half of our life as REQ was focused on serving big brands, Fortune 100 brands that were outside the beltway. What we began to find is that a good part of the political landscape, the member associations, trade groups, and so on, that were trying to advocate and be thought leaders for, for very specific issue sets towards Capitol Hill, towards the White House, towards regulatory bodies, were using very traditional, dare I say, antiquated methods to try and connect with advocates outside the Beltway to articulate their message inside the Beltway. And a good part of our business grew rapidly inside the Bellway, delivering technologies that connected to people, was using social media, was using Twitter, was using search engines to connect to people to make sure that they took civic action and how they could connect to their member of Congress, how they could connect to the White House. And we had seen where we married a lot of traditional technologies, along with some very innovative solution sets in the digital marketing world. And we have grown actually to be, that's been fastest growing segment of our business.
0: When I cover innovation here on in this show and elsewhere in my columns, uh, you know, there's no doubt that social networking and just the media generally has just changed how we communicate. Uh, I think we face a real interesting challenge right now because it's become so democratized and so chaotic, but ultimately so important Your business, to my mind, sounds a lot more like a tech business than uh, um, a consulting business.
1: Is that the right way to look at it? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you look up basically the composition of our staff, you'll find half of them are technologists that have come from technology companies, have come from the social media platforms, have come from search engines. The other half are strategists where they marry this art and science because through, as I shared, the window of the internet or a Google toolbar or through Facebook or Twitter, on how people consume their information today. And it's a very opportunity-rich environment. At the same token, it's a very dangerous environment as we've seen, Mm -hmm. right? We've seen this emergence of fake news, intentional and unintentional. Mm -hmm. How do brands or companies or these trade groups, those in DC, trade associations, define themselves between the intentional and unintentional, fake and real news? And then
0: there's a the whole issue, frankly, about whose reality it is. It is, I don't think, um, well, I've been involved in the internet from the beginning, not when, you know, somewhere slightly past when Al Gore invented it, but not long after. <laughs> and you're obviously, it's never been more complex, but it's never been more necessary to have these these technologies and strategies, which leads me to ask. Um, You just merged with Speakerbox Communication, one of uh, our our leading region's uh, uh, PR firms. How does that relate to uh, RAQ? Why did you guys decide to uh, combine businesses?
1: Well, we had known Elizabeth and the Speakerbox team for years. We followed them. We shared a handful of clients with them. And then the reputation, of course, is known throughout this region and beyond. Uh, There was a common DNA to us, right? They had served so many big brands and emerging brands in the technology landscape. And what i had shared earlier is there's very much a convergence and intersection between this traditional and non-traditional. We're finding that the quality of content required online very much speaks to earned media, solid public relations, and that thought leadership that Speakerbox has won awards on for many years. So there was a natural progression both in the technology landscape combined with what we purposely uh, purposefully. I should say, wanted to do in combining these great, you know, this tradecraft.
0: Makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, I can understand why you did it. I'm a CEO. I'm listening to this broadcast and I'm thinking to myself, this is interesting, but ultimately, how do I know if I'm on top of my digital marketing game?
1: It's one of those things that at a minimum, and it's surprising, but we still have conversations where we'll say to a certain prospective client or even a current client. What are you doing to focus on your search engine reputation and or your social media presence? How engaged are you in both listening and engaging that consumer base or population online? We still say, we still hear, forgive me, not much, okay? This is not something you should do. It's something you must do. It's compulsory in today's marketing landscape. So if this is not part of your marketing stack, if this is not part of your advocacy stack, then you're not doing something right. So in effect,
0: if I am a CEO of a business and people are talking about my business in a way other than the way I want them to, that means I'm not on top of my digital marketing game.
1: Exactly. Now, I've said this for for many years now. It's something that we believed early on at RQ that's something that is the truth today by every measure of analytics and, and things that even Google will share with you. And that is people will go online and they trust what they online. And that's a very powerful word because a lot of platforms, including Google and Facebook and others, don't have an editorial authority. So we as humans, for many years, go to the front page of the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. We tend to trust and believe the information that's provided to us. And people have that same level of trust. But if you aren't defined by yourself in those top 10 rankings of Google, your reputation or the ability to connect to customers or legislators will be defined for you.
0: Lesson learned, you are who you say you are unless you don't say who you are. Correct, absolutely. Well, well Tripp, congratulations on the merger with Speakerbox. We look forward to hearing more about that in the future. I was Trip Donnelly, CEO of REQ. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan.
1: And now, non-billable
0: consult with legal expert, Andrew Sherman.
2: Is this the last call for unicorns to go public? Public markets have been very volatile. The forecast for 2019 is foggy and choppy at best. So where does this leave some of the unicorn companies that have not yet gone public? Well, in December, Tencent Music had a successful public offering, kind of ironic that a Chinese music company in the middle of the trade wars did so well, but their stock was up considerably by the end of the first trading day. What we've got left are some of the big names. Uber, considering $120 billion valuation IPO. Lyft is already filed uh, for first quarter of 2019. Airbnb is rumored to be filing by mid-2019 and just announced its intent to go directly into the real estate development business. But will other unicorns file like the $45 billion valued WeWork Uh, is raising from SoftBank, or will they continue to stay private? But what is an IPO, anyway? An IPO is an initial public offering of securities. It's when a company will no longer be governed by private agreements, but now be expected to conduct itself with public governance standards, trading standards, and other legal requirements that come primarily from a set of laws that were passed right after the 1929 stock crash. We have the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, which basically governs all offerings of securities for companies that want to trade publicly. There are a wide variety of costs and benefits, living life in a fishbowl, living life from quarter to quarter. Uh, The compliance costs of being a public company is very significant. It's an interesting time to make predictions about whether or not a company should go public or stay private. I would keep a close eye on the markets, whether you're listening as an executive of a company thinking about an IPO or whether you're just trading stocks and trying to figure out what the next hot stock will be. Time will tell if these IPOs are successful and if we're at the end of this cycle, but clearly the appetite for high-flying tech stocks is beginning to soften, so proceed with caution.
0: That was your non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. Thanks to our sponsor, Tandem Product Academy. If you're looking to grow a software technology business and you're past your first five employees or your first half a million dollars in revenue, their free educational program will teach you how to grow your business. Supported by a broad group of our region's leading business organizations and local governments, Tandem Product Academy is free to participants. Learn more at tandeminnovate.com. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two D.C. region bands, two-car living room, and The Sunbathers. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.